as we continue to think about moving and leaning into new creation, this recognition that a new era has begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to the end of Galatians, near the end, where the apostle, in a few verses that are even beyond what Jess just ably read, helps us to figure out something about the nature of our lives as followers of Jesus, what makes it hard to lean into new creation and why it is that we need to lean into new creation. The apostle believes something that most people don't presently believe. He believes that left to ourselves, like Augustine said, we are nothing to ourselves but a guide to our own destruction. He knows, as G.K. Chesterton once said when he was pillaring the women's liberation movement in England, he said this, not me, don't get mad at me. He said, 10,000 women in England said, I will not be dictated to. And then they went out and became stenographers. This is going to take a second. We are people who pick up enslavements, even by accident. It's an adolescent thing that afflicts us our whole lives. We say, I don't want to do what you want to do, which is tantamount to saying, I'm only going to do what I want to do, which means I might do anything and be mastered by it, and might be mastered by 42 different things in the course of a day. We're constantly fighting for our own independence on our own terms, which just leads us back into enslavements over and over and over again. We flit from master to master. The apostle understands this dynamic. And so he's saying, I want to set an end to that once for all. I want to give you a resource to get out of that. I want to give you a key that you can use to liberate yourself by leaning on Christ from your own internal captivities. They keep happening to you over and over and over again. Otherwise, you are going to be susceptible to other people destroying you by inserting their own authority, their own mastery over you all the time. As Wendell Berry once said in his sayings of a mad farmer and practicing resurrection, he says, when they want you to buy something, they will tell you. And that happens to us all the time. There are people who want things for us, and we are subject to them. There are Vices that want things from us and we are subject to them. There are desires we have that crave other food and we must give in to it. And so the apostle has something to say about that. And he will go on from what Jess just read after he said, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He's concerned about community preservation. And then he goes on to say, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are at odds with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature, he says, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Idolatry and witch cord, witch cord, stay away from witch cord, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, acts of rage, selfish ambition, 
dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's a catalog. It's not every possible thing. It's a smattering to give you a taste of it. And he says, like I've warned you before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Of course, from these things, there is no law. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its lusts and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The apostle knows that what is indigenous to every single person who lives here now, without the tampering and invasion of Christ in their lives, is an unfettered pursuit of your own self-interest. It's fettered by the desires of other people, of course. You come into contact and conflict with other people who want what you want. But the apostle knows that in a community where people have not embraced fully the idea that they are justified or they are fully accepted by God based on what Christ has done for them, not on anything they can do for themselves, that community will be filled with judging. They'll be filled with backbiting. They'll be filled with looking at each other as competitors. Every person they meet will become an occasion, not for love, but an opportunity to either bolster myself or to feel discouraged. So everybody I meet will become an opponent instead of an opportunity. And so he's saying, Christ, though, has set you free from this. He set it free, set you free, so that you can know, no matter who you've been and what you've done, that you expect the welcome of God. You've been invited into the very heart of things. And you don't have to justify yourself. There is no judgment that awaits you. And you've been liberated from this this onerous root of self-interest in you that becomes the lens by which you see everything, by which you tend to misinterpret everything. You've been set free from that so that you can actually use your freedom, he says, to love one another. The entire law is summed up in the single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Virginia Stem Owen said many years ago at Texas A&M, she gave an assignment to her students. The assignment was to read the Sermon on the Mount. She figured that people in the South would know the South, sorry, not self, would know the Sermon on the Mount. They would have familiarity with the Bible. And she realized from the responses of the people, oh my gosh, for the first time, here I am in a version of the Bible Belt and people don't know the Bible. They're scandalized by it. One student, when reading the Sermon on the Mount, said that is the stupidest, most inhuman thing I have ever heard in all of my life. And she was mildly encouraged that finally someone who's reading the Bible like it was meant to be read. The words of Jesus, in so many ways, if you are rooted in your own self-interest, and if you are captive and unconflicted, captive by your own sinful nature, or what the Bible calls the flesh, this part of you that says, I get to decide for me. The part of you that's allergic to God. The part of you that assumes that if God wants anything to do with you, it's only bad. He's going to make you have bad acne and and lots of back pain. That part of you 
Whenever you hear God's law, it becomes a burden. It becomes something you want to fight against. There's no way it could be good. And you say, that's the stupidest, most inhuman thing I've ever heard. And everybody around us right now is saying that about the Bible. What the Bible teaches about sexuality, about money, about forgiveness, is the stupidest, most inhuman thing I've ever heard. Stifling. But the apostle would say, no, no, no. You're a conflicted people. Take comfort in this. You're a people of conflict. See, unbelievers don't have internal conflict, so they hear Jesus and they say, that's stupid. Believers who have been invaded by Jesus actually have this inner conflict. So you can take some comfort in this. The apostle's saying, okay, you've got competing voices going on inside of you. Martin Luther would say two different captains, each vying for position. Like two different sets of bacteria in your gut. You've got bad bacteria and good bacteria. And they're fighting and they're warring within you. And so you need the probiotics of this word to fan the good kind into flame. And so the apostle would say, look, if you find Jesus' words onerous to you, that's because you're captive to another voice. You're captive to another master. If you find, when you hear Jesus' words, something like this going on in you, I hear the possibility of that. Oh man, I wish I could be like that. Oh, I wish I could even approximate that for just a minute. If you hear the possibility, if you find yourself thinking, that would be so awesome, I wish I could do that. Or you know you've tasted little tiny pinpricks of the soothing of knowing what it is to follow him, that's because he's acted on you. That's because his spirit is alive within you. But at the same time, you've got this conflict. And Paul says, the sinful nature which is in you desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit desires what's contrary to the sinful nature. They are at odds with each other so that you do not do what you want. So I'd like you for a minute just to consider, this is supposed to be a comfort for you as a Christian. If you have conflict within you, I want to do what God wants me to do. I really, 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 really do. And on the other hand, I don't want to do any of it. Good. That means you're alive. That means the Spirit lives inside of you. That means God's moved into the neighborhood of your house. He's, he's starting to renovate your inner life. Because you're not merely saying that's the stupidest, most inhuman thing I've ever heard. But so what you're going to have to do, though, with this conflict is not be paralyzed by it. The apostle says, you got this conflict, you got this war. You could call it a yin and a yang kind of thing, but he doesn't say, therefore, let yourself be paralyzed by it. Let yourself be moved to inactivity by it. Let yourself be destroyed by it. He says, no, no, no. You're going to have to drop some of your desires and you're going to have to run after some of your others. You're going to have to pay a lot of attention to some desires in you and you're going to have to pay a very tiny amount of attention to other desires in you. I heard a great story the other day from Brenna Tooney about Wilson, the golden retriever. Wilson sounds like a noble dog and he was very instructive and he gave me the most amount of corroboration into a personal stance that I have that anyone's given me in a very long time. So I love Wilson, though I do not know him. Wilson, the golden retriever, loves vegetables. Loves them. And so when Brenda, she said, would take dinner from the dining table to the kitchen, Wilson would follow her. 
in hopes that some piece of vegetable would fall from the plate to the floor. He would snatch it swiftly and make his way back to the living room where he would ingest with delight this broccoli, this green bean, this lettuce, this carrot. But one day, as Brenda was making her way to the kitchen, a piece of kale, it looked like a vegetable, (laughs) fell to the ground. Wilson was there. He had been poised and ready. He snatched it. He took it to his perch in the living room where he held this furry, bitter, vegetable look-alike in his mouth for an hour, puzzled looking. He was holding on to it. He was sitting there. He couldn't drop it, but he was befuddled. This looks like a vegetable. It fell off the plate, but it feels like someone sprayed bug spray in my mouth. And so eventually, she said, after one hour, Wilson dropped the kale, and he walked off. And I said, thank you, Lord, for wise dogs who corroborate, corroborate what is true in the universe that you never intended for any of us to ever bother with kale in any way. <laughs> but he realized there are certain kinds of things you just have to drop. You might want them, and you might even try to hang on to them, but at some point you've got to drop them and you have to walk away. And this is what the apostle is saying. You have this principle in you that makes you say, here's what's important, me. Here's, what important. here's what's important, getting what I need. Here's what's important, people loving me, people respecting me, people paying attention to me. Here's what's really, really important, making sure that everybody's taking me into account. And the apostle says, so long as you're doing that, you're going you're gonna to be captive. You've got to drop those desires and start paying attention to other ones. You've got to drop those. What's, what's an example of this? Well, so he says, my brothers, you're called to be free. Don't indulge the sinful nature, though, with your freedom. Rather, serve one another in love. Well, Knox Chamberlain has said, in order to be free to love others, you have to be freed from others. In order to be freed to love others, you have to be freed from others. I heard an advanced auto parts commercial the other day, which is the first time in 15 years I've ever done an illustration about advanced auto parts, and probably the last. And the commercial went like this. Do you hear that sound? And there was no sound. That's the sound of a dead battery, because dead batteries don't make sounds, it said, in a great radio voice. But you know what does make a sound? Your daughter. Loud, angry, whiny sounds if you miss her game because you have a dead battery. So come to Advanced Auto Parts and get yourself a new battery. See, we know that feeling, right? They're appealing to the fact that you belong to other people and what they think of you matters so very much that you better act so they don't get mad at you. You don't want your daughter whining and complaining at you. You better do what she says. But see, so long as you're captive to the opinions and the eyes of other people, you're never going to serve them. You're just going to use them. You're going to use them to get what you want. 
You're going to use them to satisfy you in some way. And the apostle would say, look, look, look. look. No! You've been given a freedom that goes like this. The one for whom you were made has said, there is no debt, there is no score, forget it. I have been judged for you. You belong to me. The only one whose judgment can heal you or destroy you has said, I'm forever for you. And so the pronouncements of anybody else, Paul says it himself, if I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't please Christ anymore. I wouldn't be trying to please Christ. They're mutually exclusive. If I was living for their opinions, I couldn't be living for Christ. He knows that if you are beholden to what other people are thinking of you, you'll never serve them. You'll never love them. You'll never act for their good. You'll be constantly acting in such a way as to get them off your back so that they'll like you, so that they'll appraise you, so that they won't hurt you. In fact, this is what he says will happen with the law itself. This is what happens with God. If you don't believe that God has let you off the hook and you go back to this way of relating to his law, he wants you to relate to his law positively. But if you relate to it in the wrong kind of way, what you'll do is you'll do good so that God will get off your back. So he won't get you. So he'll leave you alone. But that isn't why he wants you to do his law. You have to be free from others in order to be free for others. And Paul says, this is a kind of liberation that Christ grants to you. When I was a little boy, I disobeyed my parents two different times. And both resulted in someone having a broken arm. Listen up, kids. One time it was me, but the other time it was my good friend, Joey. And I'd gone to his house, and here I'd been given these explicit instructions. When you go to his house, do not jump on the trampoline. So I went and jumped on the trampoline. Because, you know, this is what the sinful nature does. Someone says, do not eat Oreos. You're like, that's a great idea. I'd love to eat some Oreos. The sinful nature responds to what's commanded against it by saying, that's exactly what I want to do, and harder than you told me not to do it. So I was with my friend, and we were jumping on the trampoline, and he was an idiot. He said, as we were jumping, I was jumping on there by myself, he said, it's a two-man trampoline, we have to. And I was like, no, no, we don't need to both be on here. Somebody's going to get hurt. No, no, it's a two-man trampoline, we both have to be on here. I knew, even at age eight, that that was stupid. We did some kind of flip situation, one of us landed on the other, something, he wound up with a broken arm. Idiot. Just kidding. My fault, my fault. So here, here I was. My friend's got a broken arm. He's badly hurt. I don't know if it's broken. I don't have an advanced degree in medicine at this point or ever. <laughs> and my friend's mom was down the street at their house, and we were at another kid's house. And I rode my bike to his, where his mom was. But I could not bring myself to tell her that her son was up the street with a broken arm. You know why? I was terrified. I couldn't love him. She found out eventually. We figured, I don't even remember how. But she said, why didn't you tell me? And I didn't have the wherewithal at this point to say, because I have a giant yellow streak down the middle of my back. I'm a coward. I'm terrified that you're going to be mad at me. And my parents are going to be mad at me. And and what everybody thinks of me is so important that it's more important than, than helping my friend right now. I lost the ability to love somebody because I was so afraid of the other people. And I'm sure that's the first time in the history of the world that's ever happened. 
Chamlin also gives this example. Think about this. Think about this if you walk into a party, you walk into church, you walk into some place where there's a bunch of people. If you're not freed from them, if you don't have some settled sense that Christ is for me and that now my posture towards the world is to serve others, then what you will do when you walk into a room of people is you will either think, how can I impress them? Not how can I serve them. How can I impress them? Can I impress them with my wit? Can I impress them with my charm? Can I impress them with what I'm able to do? How can I make them like me more? How can I make them think more highly of me? Or if you don't think you can impress them, maybe you'll retire. You'll slither off to the side. I don't want anybody to know me. I don't want anybody to talk to me and actually realize that I don't know anything. I don't want anybody to think bad of me. I don't want anybody to get upset with me. I don't want to be exposed anyway, so I'll just hide. In either case, you're being ruled by them and you're not able to serve them. The apostle says, this is the conflict. You've been set free to love, but your sinful nature says, protect yourself. I knew we were going to have guests here today. And preaching is hard every single week for me because I always have this conflict, like you have, I hope, in everything you go into. This conflict that says, I have guests here today. I preach to you people every week. I want my guests to be impressed with me. How witty and charming and intelligent and theologically savvy. I don't want them to say like the lady at the nursing home, well, you're getting better. You know Billy Graham, but you're getting better. I want them to say, is he Billy Graham? Except younger and fatter. But you know what has to happen when I'm praying? And it's not just as preaching, it's about everything I do. I've got a conflict. There's a part of me that says, I need these people to love me and esteem me and think that I'm amazing and that I've said more profound things than they've ever heard in all their life. But then I realize, wait, wait, wait. I've not been called to do that. I've been called to serve them, to love them. And so if I'm following the Spirit, if I'm being led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is leading me, it always leads me out to care about them and not about me. And so all of a sudden I get to drop like a bad piece of kale. I get to drop caring about whether someone's impressed with me or not. It's still there. I drop it, though. And I say, Jesus, help me not to care about impressing them. Let me serve them with words for their joy and progress in the faith. When you go into a meeting and you're worried, what are they going to think about me? Jesus... Who cares what they think about me? Let me think about them. Let me love them. Let me do good to them. Let my business be beneficial to them. Let my listening be solace for them. Let your life come streaming out of me. See, it's a fruit. It's a compelling, enticing fruit that's meant to come out of us, this life of the Spirit. But you've got to drop one thing to pay attention to another. And it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of what am I paying attention to? Am I paying attention to my own self-interest, which is still there? Or am I saying, you know what, I can ignore that. And I'm going to pay attention to other people and ask the Spirit of Jesus to work through me for them. And that's why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He knows that you're already expert. We're already all expert at love. It's just turned in on itself. It's a perverted kind of love. We know exactly what it's like to think about ourselves all the time. We know exactly what it's like to think, my boss does not appreciate me. My husband does not love me right. My wife does not respect me enough. 
I don't have enough money. Why is the Lord doing this to us? We know exactly what it's like to reduce the universe down to the size of us. And Paul says, good, you've been well trained. Now, here's what you need to do. As the Spirit gets a hold of you, you need to flip that tendency outward. Do judo on yourself. Drop your concern about yourself and start thinking, how do I think about other people as much as I think about myself? Loving them like I love myself. You've heard us talk about the fundamental attribution error before. People talk about it all the time. It's such a silly concept. No, it's not. You know, the fundamental attribution error says this. When, I am, when I'm late to a meeting with you, which I will be, it won't be because of any defect in me. It will be because on the way, there was a woman who was giving birth to a child, and I had to help her deliver the baby. And, and also, there was a homeless guy, and I built him a house. And then somebody had some really deep problems, and I had to listen to him for a while. So I, I was late to my appointment. There were all these really good external circumstances that made me late. But if you're late to our meeting, it's clear that you have a character defect. You don't care about anybody but yourself. You don't care about others. You're so selfish. You're so self-absorbed. You're wasting my time. Do you see that? That's what happens. It says, when I err, I make allowances for it. It has something to do with external factors. When you err, it's because you're a scoundrel. And Paul says, you're free for making evaluations about yourself because Christ has set you free. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to struggle against your rescuer. You've been rescued. Now, turn that on other people and make allowances for them. Don't do what comes naturally. Do what the Spirit starts to create in you. Be charitable towards them. Make allowances for them. Consider maybe they have the same kinds of issues that came up as you have come up. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself will lead you and help you to do. If you don't learn to do this, you will be stuck. You'll be stuck using others. And that's why Paul says, if you follow the acts of the sinful nature, they're obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. When you're involved in sexual immorality, says C.S. Lewis, you want it, you don't want her. You want it, you don't want him. The hookup culture is about wanting it. It's not about wanting the other person. It's self-serving. All of these things, he says, the sinful nature is all rooted in excessive, compulsive self-interest. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Do any of you have to teach your children about any of those things? There's stuff we do naturally. Kathy has been feeding. We have a you know, lady. Lady has an allergy problem. What kind of dog has an allergy problem? I don't know. But some dogs hate kale. So you don't know what to expect. And Kathy's been feeding our dog Benadryl under doctor's orders. Cloaked in American cheese. Lady loves this. She doesn't know about the Benadryl. She loves the cheese. We have a wise dog. Well, that regimen has now ceased. But as soon as Kathy says, lady, come here, lady goes. She starts smacking and licking her lips and salivating. 
She's a Pavlovian experiment right there in Hinkle. She can't help it. She just does it. When I walk out in the morning, her tail just starts to wag. It's not because she's thought about it. She can't help it. It's instinctual. If you listen to all of your instinctual things, here's what you're going to do. Hating people is instinctual for you. When somebody does something wrong to you and you want to hurt them back, that's instinctual. It just comes naturally. That's because that's an embedded principle in you. It's an instinct that's wrong. It's leading you astray. And Paul says those, those, those things will destroy each other. But you can drop those desires and give attention to other ones. The ones that benefit the people around you. The ones where Christ is pushing his life out through you. And love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I'm going to close with this. You may have seen a movie called A Beautiful Mind. Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. And Russell Crowe plays John Nash. who was a Nobel Prize winning mathematician at Princeton. Who in the 50s, his considerable intellect took a dark turn and he became paranoid schizophrenic. He began to live in an altered state of reality. He began to see people in his mind that weren't there. They were real as rain to him. They weren't there for anybody else. He heard their voices. and As he finally somewhat stabilized, the Nobel Prize Committee was thinking, this guy's done such amazing work in mathematics, we need to award him with this prize. But they sent a delegate from their committee to test him out. And as he's there, he realizes what's happening. They meet him in this great hall in Princeton and Nash is sitting by himself. And Nash says, oh, I realize why you've come. You've come to see if I'm crazy, if I'm still crazy, if I'm going to mess things up if you give me the award. And he says, I might. This is a great answer. I might. But then he says this. If you wonder if I still see people, yes, I still see people in my mind. I still see things that are not there but I choose not to acknowledge them. Like a diet of the mind, I choose not to indulge certain appetites. Am I crazy? Sure. Do I have voices in my head? Yep. But what I've learned is I'm not going to indulge them. I'm not going to acknowledge them. I'm going to drop them like a furry piece of kale, and I'm going to give my attention elsewhere. I'm going to starve those things so that I might give life to other things. And the apostle says, this is what life in the spirit is like. Your savior is the only master who in his mastery will make you more yourself. He will never demean you. He's the one who, if you offer your personality to him and have the courage to be nobody, will make you somebody. He's the one that if you drop the pursuit of yourself, even though it feels like death, will resurrect another kind of fragrant, self-liberated life out of you that will be for the benefit of others. And I promise you, most of you, if you even taste liberty from yourself for even four seconds, or maybe four minutes, or hopefully even four hours, you'll find it the sweetest, most joyful thing in the world. 
And that's what the apostle wants you to know when he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free to love and not to be afraid. Free not to answer to your own self-interest, but to drop it and to move in the way of the Spirit who produces life and emancipation. Amen.